Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We're glad you're with us today. A quick reminder, if you like us on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. That definitely helps us out. And also, if you have one of those home devices, Alexa, Google Home, things like that, all you have to do is say, Play Three Martini Lunch Podcast, and it'll do that for you. And that helps us out, too. And so that's good. And we're also brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle, netsuite.com slash martini. And we'll talk much more about that in just a moment. Jim, yesterday's three good martinis were so delicious, we've decided to do it again. I think you and I are slightly addicted to good martinis already. Yeah. <laughs> this is, you know, we're, we're going to try to keep this going. News cycle, help us out. <laughs> So far, so good. I'm a little leery about how long we can keep this going, but uh, let's start with our first good martini. And we actually have a new prime minister chosen for the United Kingdom. Yes, we've known for weeks now that Theresa May was on her way out. She couldn't get the Brexit deal done. And uh, parliamentary elections aren't for another couple of years. So whoever the party chose will be the next prime minister for the next couple of years. The front runner all along was Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London, also a member of the cabinet under Theresa May. And so he wins in a convincing victory over Jeremy Hunt. He actually takes over tomorrow as prime minister. That's a pretty quick transition. And uh, here is a, a clip from his comments to his fellow Tories on Tuesday. And I think that we know that we can do it and that the people of this country are trusting in us to do it. And we know that we will do it. And we know the mantra of the campaign that has just gone by. In case you've forgotten it, you probably have. It's always, always a couple of, it is deliver Brexit, unite the country, and defeat Jeremy Corbyn. So, Jim, there you have it. Uh, getting Brexit done is a high, high priority. Uh, you have to wonder whether Boris Johnson might just uh, allow the clean Brexit to happen if a deal can't get done. It certainly seems that way. But uh, the Brits are pretty much spinning their wheels here until this gets done. So the fact that uh, they've got a fresh start on this is a very good thing. Yeah, if people want to say, oh, Jim and Greg are cheating a bit by, you know, stretching the definition of a good martini, let's characterize this one as a cautiously optimistic martini. Boris Johnson, if you followed UK politics at all, is probably not an unfamiliar name. He is, you know, former mayor of London, um, began, was very active in the Telegraph, Spectator, right of center British magazines and newspapers that I pick up every now and then. There was some talk that he had dithered on uh, Brexit, that he had gone back and forth about it. But he had generally been a Eurosceptic all those years that he was covering the EU. And the British seemed to find him absolutely charming. Now, look, I don't know whether Boris Johnson is going to be a phenomenally successful prime minister for the United Kingdom. I do think it's safe to say that Theresa May had tried every possible option, could not get the votes in Parliament for any of those options, and it was time for a change. I think the other thing which is worth noting is that if they can't work out a deal with the EU, Boris Johnson, my suspicion is he will go forward, you know, with the the hard exit, so to speak. They will go through with the the full divorce. And it may be messy and tumultuous over there. But here's the thing. If for some reason Boris Johnson is the guy who says we can't make Brexit work, then it means Brexit is unworkable. That if you're a fan of Brexit, getting Boris Johnson in there is probably the best shot you've got. And it's one of those things, you know, only Nixon could go to China. If Boris Johnson comes back and says, look, if we if we go forward with this, this is going to really going to hurt our economy. We don't want to go forward with this. Um, one, I think you'd have the poll to actually steer the numbers in the opposite direction. But two, 
you know, this is a guy who seems pretty committed to it. This is not Theresa May. This is not uh, David Cameron saying, I can't lead this party anymore because I myself do not support uh, this. He's in it. He, he, and and you know, probably the most optimistic observation uh, of this came from my colleague, Jay Nordlinger, who pointed out that, look, people have been talking about the possibility of Boris Johnson to be prime minister for a really long time, pretty much since the end of the parliament. People may remember him being mayor of London when they were having the Olympics and things like that. Um, he has this larger-than-life personality. This, you know, this is more or less the job he's been spending his whole life preparing for. Um, and in that case, he will not want to fail. So it's probably safe to say that Boris Johnson is going to throw himself into this. Um, I think it's safe to say the plate is full between the, the you know, British flag tanker being captured, a variety of other national security implications over there for the UK. Um, you know, he may be the right guy in the right time. If he's not, we're probably going to figure it out pretty fast. Uh, but for now, good luck to you, uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, you know, stormy seas ahead. They are. But how great are the Trump-Boris Johnson press conferences going to be? Oh, my goodness. This is like the one guy who probably could go toe-to-toe with Trump in saying utterly unpredictable, oh, my God, can you believe he said that type comments over and over again. All right, Jim, we know what uh, the numbers are in the race for prime minister within the conservative party. And when it comes to your business, knowing the numbers is really important as well, because if you don't know your numbers, you simply don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and human resources instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get it at netsuite.com slash martini. That's netsuite.com slash martini to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our second good martini now. And it's not often that we have Democratic committee chairman as the good martini, but that's where we are today with Richard Neal of Massachusetts. This is from NBC News. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo recently signed into law legislation designed to make it easier for Congress to obtain President Donald Trump's state tax returns. So far, the only Democrat able to use the law wants nothing to do with it. It's just one of a series of decisions that have landed House Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal, Democrat Massachusetts, in hot water with those on the left who feel the longtime lawmaker hasn't done nearly enough to obtain the president's tax returns. In a sign of progressives' anger, a Democrat on Monday announced that he will take on Neal, a moderate who has been in office since 1989, in next year's primary. It's Holyoke, Massachusetts Mayor Alex Morse who says there's an urgency to this moment in Massachusetts' first district and our country. And that urgency is not matched by our current representative in Congress. We need new leadership that understands that we can no longer settle for small, incremental, and compromising progress. We need to be on offense. 
So we also have the liberal resistance group Stand Up America demanding that Neil seek the president's state return, saying that, quote, any further delay is an injustice to the American people. An aide to a Democratic member of the House Ways and Means Committee told NBC News, quote, that there has been widespread frustration from members of the committee at how slowly this process has worked. So what flimsy, ridiculous reason does Neil have for not doing this? According to the story, Neil says he won't request the state returns by using the New York law because he believes doing so would harm his efforts at obtaining Trump's federal filings through the lawsuit, which would be tied up in the courts for years. Right now, the Democrats in Congress are suing for the federal returns. Neil told Bloomberg News that he thought requesting the state returns would boost the Trump administration's argument that Congress only wants them for political reasons and that as chairman, he does not have jurisdiction over New York taxes, which is kind of important here. Jim, so what do you make of Democratic infighting on yet another front? Yeah, first of all, remember when Democrats took the House and this is going to change everything on Capitol Hill? (laughs) And this was going to be the dark days for the Trump administration and they were to be hunkered down in a bunker and, and you know, subpoenas would be flying. Does it, does it feel really, I mean, you know, all that different? They just just did a budget deal. We didn't really like it. It's full of spending, but this means they don't have a government shutdown. It doesn't feel like an enormously different uh, uh, you know, president, particularly, especially as if you're a progressive activist, you're probably deeply disappointed with the House Democrats. And I feel... You know, this is a situation in which I'm going to be very specific about this. I think it's a good idea for presidential candidates to release their tax returns. Wrote yesterday about Joe Biden and some of the speaking fees that he has. And this comes because of financial disclosure forms and releasing the tax returns. I wish Donald Trump would release his tax returns. That having been said, I'm very wary about giving members of Congress the authority to go out and get people's tax returns because I just think there's too much potential for mischief here. Um, you're, when you submit your tax returns, you're kind of doing so under the, you know, the assumption, on the one hand, is it private information? Is it privileged information? Well, look, you probably don't want everybody knowing all that kind of stuff. Maybe you make a lot of money and you don't want people to know it. Maybe you make a little bit of money and you don't want people to know it. Maybe you uh, had a whole bunch of really bad investments go wrong. You know, There's a good chance that there's information in there that you just don't want to disclose to the whole wide world because you, it strikes you as personal. People are very understandably... Uh, uh, sensitive about their financial information and they don't want it out there. Trump's excuses are probably nonsense. He probably doesn't have every tax return going back to the past 20 years under audit, under he, as he claims. You know, this is all bad. This is all excusable. But we really open up a can of worms when Congress says to the IRS, I want to see that person's tax returns because I feel like it, as the explanation. Because the explanation they sent to the IRS and the Treasury Department was, well, we want to make sure all the president's returns are on the up and up and all that stuff. Look, it's not the job of Congress to provide a second audit of the, of the tax returns of the president. So this is where Neil, you know, is probably wise to act a little bit cautiously. If he, if he looks like he's just trying to get any tax return of the president that he can under any circumstances, it will feed into this narrative. This is a fishing expedition. They're looking for information to embarrass the president. And that's, you know, that's the real motive here. They don't have any legitimate law enforcement type uh, reasoning here that they just want to find stuff. They just want to find dirt. And so I think Neil knows what he's doing. But of course, you know, the progressive grassroots are not at a point where they're patient right now. They don't want to wait. They want to get to the good stuff now. Uh, And then they probably feel like they've been, you know, just as conservative grassroots were frustrated after uh, the 2010 House elections and what life was like with the Republican House. I'll bet you there are a lot. The resistance is probably looking at the Democratic House and saying, wait a minute, you guys told us if we got the House, you'd be able to do all this neat stuff. I'm not seeing much neat stuff from you guys. The Democrats are split amongst themselves in the House. And even if you do fight and scrape and claw and get something over the finish line in the House, 
Mitch McConnell's going to ignore it. And even if he got it through the Senate, Trump would veto it. So it's uh, welcome to uh, where Republicans were about a decade ago. Actually, uh, we were even in worse spot because we didn't have anything. Yeah. Back welcome then. to governing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. So uh, dysfunctional Democrats in the House of Representatives. I'm, I'm not going to shed any tears over that. In fact, I'll drink to that. All right, let's move on to our final good martini today, Jim. And let's go to Tulsi Gabbard, still, yes, running for president, in case you forgot, still a congresswoman from Hawaii. She was a guest on the Outkick the Coverage show with Clay Travis on Tuesday. I find that entertaining in and of itself, that the presidential candidates are spending time there, but uh, they're trying to reach the broadest audience possible. And while there, the uh, Free Beacon reports, Gabbard argued that Senator Kamala Harris is not qualified to serve as a commander-in-chief. One of the things that I'm most concerned with is uh, well, Kamala Harris is not qualified to serve as commander-in-chief, and I can say this from a, a personal perspective as a soldier. She's got no background or experience in foreign policy, uh, and she lacks the temperament that is necessary for a commander-in-chief. You know, I've seen the cost of war firsthand. I've experienced the consequences of what happens when we have presidents as we have from both political parties in the White House who lack experience, who lack that foreign policy understanding, who um, therefore fall under the, the influence of the foreign policy establishment, the military-industrial complex. This is what's so dangerous. Not only a shot at Kamala Harris, I'm sure it was a shot at George W. Bush, but it's clearly a shot at Obama, too. So this will make the Democrats real happy, Jim. Yeah, so actually, in that circumstance, I'd really love to ask Tulsi Gabbard, who was the last president you liked? (laughs) I mean, she's probably not saying George H.W. Bush, New World Order, you know, all that kind of... I mean, here's the thing. Once you get into the military-industrial complex talk, I realize there are a lot... Look, there's a lot of Pentagon waste. There's a lot of people who question whether we need to have troops in as many countries as we do, et cetera. And just unfortunately, the the phrase military-industrial complex... People who begin conversations with that usually end up talking about fluoride in the water by the end of the conversation uh, or, or calm trails or, or something like that. But it is kind of interesting here in that I think, first of all, I think that Tulsi Gabbard soundbite probably will end up in some Trump ad uh, if, if Kamala Harris is the nominee. I think the fact that Gabbard is taking shots at her indicates that there are a decent number of these challengers and asterisks level candidates who realize, wait a second, plenty of people are hitting Biden, plenty of people are hitting Sanders Harris is up there or probably up there with Warren. And if you want to take a shot at her, you know, like I think everybody figures that with, with Warren, uh, Focahontas and uh, the, the fake claim of Native American ancestry, that's the kill shot once you get to a, a one-on-one stage, right? You don't bring that up until you have to. Once it's down to the two of you, you just hammer this with us. And you can't say, look, we can't put her up against Trump because you can point out that she was a, that she was a woman of color at Harvard. Right. That, you know, that, so that so I think probably people realize, wait a minute, Kamala Harris is the one you got to take some shots at. And my suspicion is, is that, you know, Tulsi Gabbard's going to play the veteran card on every one of these folks. I don't know how much traction she's going to get for it. What I do think is kind of interesting. She talks about um, Kamala Harris has already had a couple of moments where she said, let's get rid of private insurance. And then she said, well, maybe not. She went after Biden on busing, but she herself doesn't actually think that we should bring back federal busing. She says that we can fund uh, all the stuff she wants to do and cut taxes on the middle class. And apparently even Bernie Sanders is saying, come on, that's a rainbows and and unicorns uh, type answer for the finances of this. The argument against Kamala Harris that strikes me as most effective, that's that's taking shape as this this primary forms, Kamala Harris will say whatever it takes to get you to applaud. 
if this is what's going to will sound great on the debate stage, then she'll do it and she'll get that, you know, that, that, get that. But when you say to her, oh, does that mean then that you believe Biden was wrong to oppose busing and you want to bring it back? No, 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 no I don't want to say that. <laughs> no. um, so you do want to get rid of, uh, you know, she's already flip-flopped twice on the issue of getting rid of private insurance. This is a person who has, you know, and she, look, she may be taking lessons from Barack Obama, insisting that we weren't going to need an individual mandate when he's running against Hillary Clinton and then saying, oh, never mind. Yes, you do. Trump saying uh, we were going to, you know, completely eliminate the debt, but also we were going to touch entitlements. You know, look, the American electorate is not great at making candidates stick to reality, to stick to the realm of the possible and the financially plausible uh, when making their projections and putting together their economic plans and things like that. If you're a Democrat, you got to hammer on this now. Um, but even if you don't, right, my suspicion is you'll probably end up seeing some variation of this uh, in the general election. But it's kind of interesting. I think Tulsi Gabbard's comments here are sort of like the starter's pistol for everybody starting to turn around and say, hey, time to start. You know, it's, it's Kamala Harris's moment to be put through the ringer. Yeah, I like that. Kind of reminds me of 2012 with the Republicans. Everybody had their turn and then everybody uh, got pounded back and ultimately uh, Romney emerged. I don't know if Joe Biden is playing the role of Mitt Romney this time or there even is a Mitt Romney equivalent in this race. But uh, we will find out. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden part two coming up in about a week. Jim, fun to be with you as always. I don't know if we can get three good ones tomorrow, but hey, boys can dream. Keep it up. It's it's almost Friday, right, Greg? (laughs) Getting there. Getting there. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to uh, visit our good friends over at NetSuite. Again, that's netsuite.com slash martini. And get your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. And tune in again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.